0: This episode is sponsored by Schneider Electric. Climate change is here, and so is the requirement to understand and report the risks that it brings to your business. As your partner in sustainability, Schneider Electric can help you navigate the winds of change. To see how, visit se.com forward slash climate risk.
1: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McHour here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why a real estate company is going big on EV infrastructure, why climate tech startups need a new carbon reporting framework, why there's no such thing as ESG investing, and can sustainability bridge political divides? We're crossing the aisle this week on 350. It's December 2nd, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Viz 350. We're so glad to have you with us and joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey with Winter Wonderland. It's GreenBiz editorial director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
0: Hey, Joel. It's great to talk to you again. I hope you're well on this. I don't know, early December morning.
1: I know uh, it's December. Who'd have thunk? Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels like it was a couple days ago. It was November. <laughs> oh, no. we're coaching <laughs> into the home stretch of oh. D22, <laughs> and uh, you know, we I guess we dialed down. We're gonna you know, take the last couple of weeks off, uh, podcasting. And, uh, I'm going to be off one of those weeks. I don't, I'm not sure of your travel plans, but, um, getting ready for end of year stuff and beginning of next year, or we always sort of run a bunch of stories. What, what are we doing this year, Heather?
0: What are we doing? Uh, we are coming to grips with that actually. <laughs> yeah, but I have, I have a number of, um, pieces that I'm trying to, Line up as do the rest of the team, but so yes, the analysts and editors of GreenBiz all have their predictions and what we got right and wrong kinds of pieces. Um, also going to be taking a look at some of the biggest stories of the year, uh, according to you, the readers and listeners of of GreenBiz, with a, a piece wrapping up the, the top performers. So I just yeah, I'm actually complete non sequitur. Joel, I'm also thinking about like last-minute shopping, and I stumbled across this fascinating set of Barbies, (laughs) Eco Leadership Team Barbies. Wait, Uh, I'm not buying them for (laughs) myself.
1: Eco Leadership Team Barbies. This is a Barbie that is in the character of a of a chief sustainability officer.
0: Well, there are four Eco Leadership Barbie team members. A conservation scientist a renewable energy engineer an environmental advocate and yes a chief sustainability officer barbie and she has a pink suit i don't know about pink but Mm. hey anyway i'm just i just someone um actually a cso uh talk a hat tip to uh nikki king from unilever (laughs) a chief sustainable i mean a sustainability professional she uh was uh, happy, happily, uh, talking about this on LinkedIn this week. And I just uh, had a tip to her.
1: (laughs) So let's pardon the expression, unwrap this a little bit. Uh, (laughs) I imagine that, um, that eco Barbie is made from sort of all kinds of eco groovy materials.
0: Mm, Partially. It looks like they're doing this from recycled plastic. I remember Mattel had a recycled plastic, um, initiative that they announced, I think about a year ago, they were collecting toys. And I know that uh, our colleague, Deanna Anderson, is actually doing some follow-up on that. But um, yeah, this is just, I I don't know, I just, one of these, I'm just- How do you feel about
1: that? I'll just tell you, I'll lay my cards on the table here. I'm of two minds here. One is that it's great that a a major brand, a global brand, uh, iconic brand uh, called Barbie, is, is uh, stepping into sustainability roles. Um, and I think that's good. Uh, I, I also, you know, sort of, is this uh, a, just, uh, you know, pay no attention to the rest of the company with, that's using, mm. you know, non-recycled plastics or who knows what, I haven't really dived into what Barbie or Mattel products are made from. I, I'm guessing they're, you know, the traditional plastics, uh, which are for kids' toys, multi-layered, multi- uh, polymer plastics, which are hard to recycle and all that. I, you know, it was, uh, look, props are due, you know, put this out there to young girls and, and their, their adolescents and, and maybe give them the aspiration to be a sustainability professional. That's a, that's an important thing to do. Thank you, Mattel. But I always just wonder, is this, you know, sort of a little green corner over here to just, to dissuade, uh, uh, viewing the larger part of the company?
0: I think it's a yes and. I mean, I do think some of these initiatives are you know, a little I don't I I don't want to use the word greenwashy, but they they do distract. I'll will say that. Um, but I do also strongly feel that what children learn in, at an early age and think about at an early age really shapes their viewpoint on the world and I love that the children playing with these things will see that possibility i i also by the way i'm I'm staring at the photograph they are also diverse um the conservation scientist is a black woman the activist is someone of south asian um persuasion i believe which i love I, i love that so anyway yeah i just a bizarre distraction here no. on, on no, in I'll, early I'll, December.
1: I'll... No, no, no. It's a it's <laughs> it's a, it's on it's on brand, uh, and I will temper my uh, my cynicism here and say uh, kudos mm-hmm. to Mattel for for putting that out there, and um, we'll look forward to seeing what that happens. Uh, not just in the market, but for the girls who mm-hmm. uh, who who get to play with them. So let's uh, celebrate that, and then uh, for now, let's celebrate. The Week in Review. So let's start with a story that comes from three, count them, three authors. Uh, uh, Lee Reck from uh, Ada, uh, from Ala Farms, an Israeli uh, startup. Um, my old friend, Amy Christensen, who's the CEO of Christensen Global, and Rick Saines from a consultancy called Pollination. They write a piece about the need for uh, sort of creating new metrics and measurement systems for startups uh, when it comes to sustainability. Um, most of the frameworks that exist, the Science-Based Targets Initiative and others, um, are really about taking legacy companies and, and you know, retrofitting them in, in more sustainable ways. Um, but what about the, the, the ones that we're scaling up? from, you know, from seeds, really, and growing into full-fledged companies with hopefully market impact uh, around climate solutions, uh, we don't really have uh, metrics for that. And that's what um, uh, these three authors are advocating for. And I think it's you know, based around Olive Farms, which is a company that's, uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of, 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 of meeting them at the both of the last two COP conferences in Glasgow last year and, and in Egypt this year. Um, and... You know how do you measure or how do you assess and watch the improvements for a company that doesn't have a lot of impacts because it doesn't have a lot of business, but over time will be growing into that company. And I think they they uh, they look at that and uh, talk about the need for that and, and some suggestions on on what do we do.
0: Yeah, I like this piece because of that. I, I because so many of the frameworks focus on the progress you're making and how you're how much you're cutting. Um, if you're starting from a good place to begin with, then you don't look as good. (laughs) So it's I mean, that's part of the challenge. I I will say that I'm this is a whenever I interview venture capitalists at this time, I am asking about this. What are the VCs out there doing to help their portfolio companies put these kinds of practices into place from the beginning? And what what? are they using to measure the potential impact a lot of the funds out there are starting to look at the potential reduction impact uh, of the of a company's technologies and so forth and i and more so now they're including the operations in that so i think it's it's just it, this is a great one of those like st- stake in the ground kind of like hey we need to think about this more and as we have people exiting the workforce um, through the layoffs right now, and also through still that, the, the idea of quitting, you know, the, the quiet quitting and the, you know, the people leaving to start their own things. I think this is more important when we have cycles like this, we have a lot of entrepreneurship and this is a great time for us to really think about how early stage and growth stage companies, um, can be net zero from inception as opposed to growing into that.
1: Well, since uh, Olive Farms is making a, a cellular-based uh, uh, beef, I think steak in the ground is an appropriate uh, term here. So let's leave that there and move on to another piece that is uh, sort of about a different piece of this that I think is really interesting is how corporate sustainability can, uh, can bridge political divides. This comes from Sandru Seru, who's the director of the U.K., uh, U.S. director of the UK-based Forum for the Future. And, uh, you know, starts off talking about the fact that we're going back in the United States into a divided uh, government with the Republican uh, House and Democratic Senate and Democratic White House. Um, and, you know, how did wh- what kind of change is possible uh, here? And sort of she has a little bit of retrospective of how of, of where you know we've come from that, you know, climate has had some wins in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and even at the ballot box in no- last month in November. But, you know, what do we do about that? How do, What's the role of corporate leadership? And has uh, some things that she's recommending companies do, um, you know, get out of our information cocoons, uh, you know, which, which includes, you know, looking at a bipartisan and cross the islands of voices that you may not, you know, agree with or like or even respect but still need to listen to. And uh, investing in democracy, you know, supporting uh, you know, make it easier for employees to vote, for example, or ending voter discrimination. I do want to say that for a piece that's about bridging the political divide, it does come from a sort of a, a left of center perspective, uh, you know, advocating for political financial and media reform that, you know, basically uh, companies advertising on social media wielding influence. I think that's a direct dig on some of the right wing media that's uh, that right wing social media at least that's uh, advancing through the system that is still being supported by advertising companies that may not agree with those views anyway uh i, I think it's it, it's an important topic clearly we need uh, bipartisan support and we're seeing uh, sort of amazing stuff this week we saw uh, you know bipartisan support on 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 gay marriage mm-hmm. um uh that's uh, sort of who to thunk mm-hmm. that, that the mm-hmm. Republican Senate would vote in favor of that. Uh, Republicans in the Senate, still a Democratic Senate. Um, and so I guess anything's possible. What do you think, Heather?
0: Yeah, I will also point out that that particular bill also supported interracial marriage, which in this country was not supported for a very long time. Um, and that was part of the intention as well. I, I I know that I'm guilty of being in an echo chamber, and what this tells me is that we need to listen to each other more. And I think that for me was one of the most um hopeful things about this particular piece, and that also, um, I do take comfort in the idea that the the, you know, I, i'm I'm very much um a worry when it comes to, the, the idea of democracy and voting in, this, in the United States and how some of the forces have come around to make that far more difficult. And um, I did come away feeling hopeful. Um, I also feel like this particular Congress, it will be tougher in the House for sure, but the I see the opportunity for a lot of bipartisan work to happen because of that, because the, the, the representation is so close. So I don't know. I, 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 I like the fact that we have sort of a almost equally divided houses, if you will, in, in the Congress. Um, it makes it tougher, but it also makes it, it more inc- incumbent upon all of us to have a bipartisan point of
1: view. Yeah, I agree with that on the divided government thing. I'm going to sound like a curmudgeon this week because I've been, you know, reeling against Barbie and a number of other things. And I'm going to take a similarly, somewhat skeptical view here um, in that, uh, you know, what you said, Heather, around uh, we, need, we need to listen more to uh, more diverse voices and politically diverse voices. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> don't, don't disagree with that. But you know what? Uh, six years ago, after uh donald trump was elected you know somewhat surprisingly uh we said the same okay. thing we said you know we need to get out in the field we need to talk to middle america we need to talk to go to red states and you know, really understand what they're thinking of because obviously we didn't and that we misjudged them and that's how we ended up with trump um we've been singing this song for a while and look i'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone in terms of living in a bubble um and uh, and i do from time to time, but not regularly enough force myself into uh, media that I would not normally be consuming, um, just to see what the, what the, uh, voices are. And you may have seen on the internal yes, Green Biz Slack channel this week, I've passed along a couple yeah. of, uh, of videos that are just, I, I just have to say right wing hit jobs about ESG saying that's basically, and this is almost a direct quote, will destroy America as we know it. Um, and, and one, another one that's saying that, uh, offshore wind energy is, is kind of the worst environmental thing to ever happened. Um, and so, you know, we don't have, we don't need to agree with those. We don't need to like those, but we need to understand what other people are saying. And so I think if, if that's, that's the only thing that comes from, from this divided government is that we just listen a little bit better. Um, now I'm being more of a cockeyed optimist. Uh, I think that will, that will be a win, but you know, know what a win is. Let's, let's go to the last story because I think a win is something that that I don't think uh, anyone's going to argue with. And this is a piece from uh, Ashna Agarwal, who's uh, with a nonprofit called uh, Power for All, which looks at uh, the uh, accessibility of not just electricity, but but renewable electricity in the world's uh, poorest nations and communities. Um, Wrote a piece called The Clean Energy Sector Needs More Young People. And, uh, you know, Sustainability needs more young people in general. But I think what this is about in particular is uh, in a lot of the companies where uh, Power for All is working, India, Kenya, Nigeria, Uganda, Ethiopia, um, upskilling uh, the youth to take on the the jobs for uh, distributed, clean, renewable energy uh, that in in many cases brings electricity for the first time to communities or if not, at least it brings clean energy and, and uh, obviates the need for burning de- dirty diesel, which is extremely unhealthy for people and the planet. And so, how do we uh, create the programs that train young people in those parts of the world um, to, to take on these jobs? Uh, and I cite a report called Powering Job Census that uh, Power for All did. Uh, to uh, f- and, f- and found that um, you know some of the some of the needs out there. Um, and one part I know that you'll uh, uh, appreciate if you weren't aren't already just about to jump in and talk about, but <laughs> I'll step back and let you. Is this, the report found that women's participation in uh, distributed renewable energy has improved uh, in all mm-hmm. of the in most of the companies they the countries they focused on, all but India.
0: Yeah. So I. I uh yes, I do appreciate that and I I think that one of the things that I really took away from this piece is that we so Africa is such a, a crucial continent right now and and the countries in Africa to pull off this transition and and we and we have this sort of cusp of a tipping point where, youth is going to either they're going to find jobs in some place or at least try to find careers in some in some industry and why not distributed renewables Um, because that's where we want their expertise to to go and rather than fossil fuels let's just be candid here because that's where it could go um and this represents an opportunity for women to to enter you know for the first time to really have an opportunity in career so i and and we know here in, in the united states women are very vastly underrepresented in um the kinds of jobs that this story is focusing on i think a lot of it is, is focusing on um actual installation and and selling and and how do you get these things the this technology out into the marketplace um and i i'm not familiar with all of the work that this this particular um, organization does, but it all. It, this story also makes me think about all of the um, initiatives that many corporations have uh, uh, for energy in Africa. You know, oh, we're going to fund this, um, and not not to say that these aren't important, but we're going to fund the, this energy for cooking and energy in this this small community. And we're going to put a we're going to put solar here, and we're going to put solar there, and um, there's a lot of really cool um, initiatives focused on that, but this the training and helping teach the the people there how to make this part of their economy, I think is, I, I think sometimes we, it's the hunt in a, teach someone how to fish, you know, like what, if you're going to do something with your money, why not the, the skills and the training and which, cause it's clearly needed. And, um, you know, so I see a huge opportunity for the corporations in on that are listening, that are thinking about where to put some of their dollars, um, this would be a really great place
1: yeah and it's not just in, in you know in the hardware in this, in the solar panels or the wind turbines or the cook stoves or the you know small scale light systems that you know you can put in, in 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 homes it's the skills uh that's what we're talking about here it's the reskilling and the upskilling uh of of the workforce in 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 these or the potential workforce in, in some of these markets uh the vocational education as we would call it here uh, and the training, and then and then keeping that training going over time. That's where uh, I think corporate dollars need to go, and that's where uh, the the power of of philanthropy really lies in bringing power to everyone.
0: Hey, want some airtime on the podcast? We're seeking one minute long submissions for our annual outlook episodes, answering the following question. As a sustainability professional, what is your hope for 2023? To participate, send your audio file to me, heather at greenbiz.com, and start with a brief introduction. For example, I would say, Hi, I'm Heather Clancy, Editorial Director at GreenBiz. And my hope for 2023 is that corporations will finally start embedding climate justice considerations into their climate action and sustainability plans, blah, 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 blah. Okay, you get the idea. The deadline for submissions is Monday, December 12th, and selected responses will be aired in the December 16th and January 7th episodes. So come on, get talking. Hope to hear your submissions.
2: I'm Grant Harrison, Director for Sustainable Finance and ESG with Green Biz Group. And I made a visit to Boston last week where I eventually ate turkey with my partner's extended family, but before I did, I made a few stops to visit sustainable investing leaders in Beantown, of which there are many. Boston is home to so many of the institutions that have been doing ESG before it was cool, so to speak. Firms like Green Century Capital Management, Boston Common Asset Management, and Trillium Asset Management. Trillium was founded by Joan Bavaria, often referred to as the founding mother of socially responsible investing. The Founding Mother was also instrumental in launching key institutions in the sustainable investing space like Ceres and US SIF. That's the Sustainable Investment Forum. I sat down with Elizabeth Levy, Trillium's head of ESG strategy in her office in Boston, to chat through what characterizes the firm's 40 years of investing for a better world, as they say, and some of her thoughts on the most critical sustainable investing topics du jour. First things first, 40 years of Investing for a better world, I just want to focus on that because better world could look a lot of different ways and you've been doing it for 40 years. Here we are, the world is pretty good, depending on where you are on it and who you are. What does that mean, the investing for a better world, as it relates specifically to the ESG concept or to anything outside of that Venn diagram that is not ESG?
3: Yeah, so Trillium was founded by Joan Bavaria in 1982 with the idea that she could help her clients align their capital and their values. And over the decades, um, you know, we've really refined that practice into, uh, you know, both the investing in public markets as well as we do community investing uh, in private markets. So with uh, CDFI, Community Development Financed Institutions, uh, local organizations that our clients can invest in, you know, in different communities around the country and the world, um, as well as some private market uh, positive impact focused investments that we have for our clients. But I think what we are primarily known for is our shareholder advocacy program. And we begin with the, the idea that we're investing in companies that you know we think are pretty good. They meet our criteria, but there's no such thing as a perfect company. Any company can be made better. And uh, so our really skilled shareholder advocacy team, there are five or six of them now, uh, have, you know, a great reputation over the years of working with companies to improve their practices. And I think we have a solid track record of seeing issues, sustainability related issues that are going to become material before they do. So, Mm. for example, food waste was something that we were working on with a number of the companies we invest in a few years before everybody else started. Uh, And so we had brought that conversation up. Similarly, we had been asking companies to report on their their diversity data that they already file with the government, the EE01 data that they're already collecting and reporting on privately. We had been asking them for years leading into 2020 to start making that information public. Uh, and so we think that the companies that you know we've been bringing this topic up with in 2018, 2019, 2020 were much better prepared for what happened in the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think that is um, really one of the the strengths of Trillium is that program where we help the companies that we invest in become more sustainable, as well as at the same time we also do some um, policy engagement. So you know, writing letters commenting to the SEC or occasionally meeting with government representatives testifying uh, at either, you know, state or municipality uh, levels and meeting with politicians.
2: What is, what does the next 40 years of investing for a better world look like? That's a really deep look into a crystal ball that nobody has, but if you look at it, describe it.
3: Well, I, I certainly would not have expected the last five years to look the way that they did. Mm. Um, You know, certainly pandemic wise, nobody saw that coming, but even in terms of the, uh the growth of interest in sustainable investing i mean over my 20 year career we've been saying for many years like oh the the interest the growth of interest that people around the world have particularly as younger generations are inheriting money and women are inheriting money and in general younger people and women tend to be really interested and passionate about um the kinds of issues and values that we are uh talking about and you know we've seen that worldwide right and now the Growth of interest in ESG uh, and what that has come to mean, and how controversial it's become, and how in certain circles ESG seems to mean BlackRock. Like mm-hmm. that, no, that was really surprising to me. I did not see that coming. But I, I don't see any changes in the underlying drivers. Um, the climate is still sadly changing. Uh, workers are still sadly being exploited. All of these issues that we've been working on. Uh, continue to be important and continue to matter to people. So I see investors continuing to really care and not just investors, like people, right? Uh, So employees really care. And as companies are trying to attract talent, particularly uh, Gen Z and younger talent, they need to care about these issues in order to maintain their staff. So I, I don't see no matter what any politicians say, I don't see this style of investing, whatever you wanna call it, uh, you know, becoming any less important. I think it's great that that so many people have been able to align their values with their investments over the last few years.
2: Well, let's carry on with the, you mentioned the style of investing and we talked a little bit before about this on the nature of ESG investing. One key line being there is no such thing as ESG investing, which thankfully many, a few people, not many, have been putting out in the, into the ether of ESG, but. That doesn't seem to dissuade people from still saying, and I'm probably guilty of calling ESG investing in my own newsletters. To be honest, Uh, tell me about how there's no such thing and what is there.
3: Yeah, so ESG, environment, social, and governance. Uh, So ESG, when we use it as ESG investing, means investing using ESG, ESNG information. The question then is, what are you using the information for? And there are Lot many different uses of that information, and I think that a lot of the, you know, the the brouhaha over ESG investing right now is because there is not a lot of clarity about what different players in the market are doing with this information. Uh, so one thing you could do with the information is just simply use this information to get better financial returns, make better financial decisions. That is a totally legitimate purpose for using that data. That is not the same thing as trying to drive positive impact with your investments. And it's not the same thing as aligning values with investments. But all three of those purposes are often combined into ESG investing. Mm-hmm. And then it's no wonder when people get upset or they feel like they've been sold a greenwashed portfolio when they find Exxon, for example, in an ESG fund mm-hmm. or ETF because they thought they were getting an impact investment, right? And in that case, Exxon shouldn't be in there, arguably, depending exactly on how you're defining. But that's the problem, uh, is that it's been used to mean so many different things without folks really understanding the products that they were investing in. Uh, And so, you know, we welcome any attempts by regulators anywhere to try to improve the situation uh, and improve the clarity because you know, for the, the end investors and the beneficiaries of investments, it, it's their money and they should get to know what's happening. They should be able to make investment choices and allocations based on understanding exactly what their investments are. And I think by just lumping everything into ESG, it's done a real disservice and it's opened up all sorts of, you know, valid and, uh, and not valid criticisms from all different directions at the same time. So I think that being more clear about what we mean, what we're trying to do in a particular investment vehicle. Um, you know, we we think that's the the key to untangling this whole ESG mess.
2: Saw a survey recently, a pretty robust one of 401k participants on what how do you feel about ESG starting with what is it? And the preponderance of respondents said it, it stands for economic stock growth. So that's not a great starting point. Um, wow. When I say, or someone who's in political office uh, of red persuasion says, I invest in value, not values. What does that make you feel or think in terms of how that relates to what ESG is meant to do?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's ridiculous. Like there are value judgments in all investments. It's just whether you're being clear and honest about it or not, right? So if you're gonna sit there you know, in your red office and say like, we should not include any of this stuff. Okay, but the climate is actually changing, right? And so if you're gonna invest in, physical assets or an insurance company or anything that has real physical impacts, how can you not, like, how could you not consider climate? That would be, I think, a dereliction of fiduciary duty to not even, you know, consider what's going on in reality already. So, you know, when you, when somebody like that says like, oh, we're just focused on value, like, yeah, but this information has value in the investment process. Mm-hmm. Again, it's what you do with it. You could choose, you know, to invest in line with a set of values that's not the same as mine. That's fine. You could say, well, you know, I want to invest in fossil fuels because that's very aligned with my values. I like warm weather. Mm-hmm. That's not my investment style, <laughs> but that's fine, I suppose. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just like that's that's just politics. That's yeah. not real because everybody knows that
2: yeah what about so you mentioned the the valid and less valid ESG criticisms are there any in the valid category that don't get enough like plenty of light given to how maybe a title of a fund misconstrues what it's actually doing or I don't know there's there's maybe like three key themes of ESG criticism that kind of get recycled is there anything any of the valid criticisms that you don't think get enough attention and are worthwhile to pick apart because they can be used to, to better shape this space
3: um, I think the notion that, um, and this this was very clear in that Bloomberg article about MSCI less. Oh yeah, about the
2: ESG ago. mirage.
3: Yeah. Uh, so the whole notion of like, what what are you doing with ESG data, and what is ESG data doing for you? And and the way that that article crystallized it for me was, are you looking at what ESG data does to your portfolio or are you looking what your portfolio does to ESG impacts in the world? Mm -hmm. And that is such a a different way of thinking about things. Um, I think that does get some attention, but it's kind of, it's a nuanced point of like trying to understand like what actually, like how is this data constructed and then what do you do with it? And, And it's really to try to understand that these data providers, you know, they're they're starting with facts and then they layer on assessments of the facts and then they lay on risk models on top of the assessments of the facts. And like, it gets very complicated quickly. And if you're just using, you know, you take their final product and say like, great, a triple A from MSCI, good yeah. enough for me, but you don't, you haven't peeled back the onion. Um, and the point being that 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 type of assessment is really looking at like what are the risks to your portfolio versus you know when when we're thinking about it on behalf of our clients like they want us to think about what are the impacts of our p- portfolio on society on the environment on the workforce yeah um, but again that to me it all comes back to like being clear about what what your purpose is and what you're trying to accomplish. Veris
0: Residential is proud of touting its status as the first U.S. real estate company to join the EV100, an initiative focused on promoting adoption of electric vehicles. Its commitment is to install charging infrastructure for staff and customers at 20 locations by 2030. Karen Casmano, the company's head of sustainability and ESG, joins me to discuss that agenda. Karen, welcome to GreenBiz350. Hi, thank you, Heather. Thanks for having me. It's super to have you here. and It's wonderful to talk to someone else from New Jersey for a change. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, I think it would be really helpful to have some context about Ver- Veris. What sorts of properties does your company manage? So like, let's start there.
4: So Veris Residential is an environmentally and socially conscious real estate investment trust. Uh, we own, operate, and acquire and develop holistically inspired Class A multifamily properties that meet the sustainability-conscious needs and lifestyles of our residents. So we have different types of properties. We 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 currently manage over 20 properties, of which some are you know garden style, and we have mm-hmm. mid-rise, and we do have some high-rise mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. buildings, mm-hmm. mostly in the Northeast. And, you know, of the 20 buildings, you know, some of them are JV ownership, but, you know, but we do manage them. So we have operational control to, you know, create some of these initiatives.
0: It's interesting you mentioned sustainability as part of like a company's mission, um, which I think is notable. So how does EV charging infrastructure play a role in the company's kind of large climate action agenda? So like why that particular
4: investment? So we announced our um transformation to become more sustainability focused, we felt that EV charging was a priority. And, you know, we look at that as a, we're trying to attract environmentally conscious residents and, you know, giving, saying that someone who drives an EV vehicle, an EV would probably, you know, have that as a lifestyle that would match our mission. And as you, you know, if you're able to, you know, give them the infrastructure and promote this and you'll get the residents that you would want in your portfolio or need to, to get your climate, create your climate impact, because hopefully when they're using energy in their space, they'll be more conscious, they'll follow. We, we have a concept of our green lease or a, like a lifestyle addendum to live. So if we can have these amenities, the eco-friendly amenities, we would attract people and residents that would live a lifestyle that would help us with our climate. Also, our, our staff, you know, they can park at these. So that directly impacts our scope three emissions that we would report. Um, so if we can have our, our employees can park in our spaces. And we've, we've been talking about recently that indirectly, I mean, so our residents commuting would not be part of our GHG emissions that we would have to report, but there's this concept now of of emissions avoidance and dabbling in a scope four possibly to add to the GHG (laughs) protocol. So, yeah, you know, we're we're trying to look forward to making sure our residents can also make good choices and, you know, driving an EV vehicle, you know, is proven to have less carbon footprint than a gasoline vehicle. I do
0: hear that scope four, uh, Concept uttered more often of late. Um, just curious, and maybe this depends on the building, but do the residents get direct incentives for these for these sustainability improvements? So, so in other words, if it's a green lease, are they paying um, their electricity bills? Are they paying your your utilities, which where this would help offset some of their own costs, or is it this is embedded into their their overall rent?
4: So for utility usage and electric and gas, most of our buildings are set up where the residents actually pay separately. Mm -hmm. So within their space, they are paying for their own electric and gas and water and, you know, anything that will affect the environment. So we, again, just by providing the EV chargers, we feel that we're going to attract residents that want to live that lifestyle and are going to be more energy focused and efficient and, and, Following, so we give, I would say, suggestions. It's not really like, oh, you didn't do this, so you can't be in our space. It's more of suggestions mm-hmm. on, in our lease, maybe when to set down temperatures, what temperatures to use. So um, the EV charges are in our garages, so our residents will have access to it, and that would be on our our house meter. So, That's on your time, okay. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. so any mm-hmm. of the electric usage there, and that becomes part of our scope, too, um, you know, and electric usage. So that would be, so as residents are using those, yes, that goes into our scope too, but the residents will not, you know, that would not affect them.
0: So is there, uh, to get more granular um, about the, the infrastructure that you're charging, but that you're installing, um, how do you figure out the per tenant investment scenarios? Like, and these, imagine, you mentioned lots of different ranges of buildings. Some, some of the high-rises that I'm thinking about in Jersey City, where I know you're sitting right now, have a lot of people in them. Um, many of those people probably commute using public transit. But like, how do you figure out, okay, in this building, we think we need X number of chargers. Like, wh- how, what is the formula you use to figure that out?
4: So we have started, we're going to put out um, surveys because mm-hmm. we're at mm-hmm. a point where exactly that question is coming up where and we want to be forward thinking we want to think ahead so we want to know who is moving into our building what do you would you buy an ev charger if we made it stations more available for you that you would be able to charge so at this point i don't think there's actually a formula it's we're seeing need we just put in at our house 25 um new development uh like 12 charging stations with two ports, so that's considered 24, 24. charging units, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I drive by there sometimes just to see, and, you know, being an EV driver myself, and I'm seeing a lot of spots open. So, you know, we're happy, we, we think that they're gonna get used, so we, we're ahead of it, you know, we're, and if we need to put more, we will, but we were trying to put more, we're always forward thinking, because, honestly, it's more expensive to do it after the fact, so we mm-hmm. planned ahead, you know, so we may not need 24 charging units right now, but we we feel that that is where things are going as EV vehicles are becoming more prominent and as the EV 100 is trying to do is, you know, accelerate the transition to EV vehicles and make it the norm. So I think the first side is surveys. I mean, we need to survey our current yeah. residents and ask them the questions. Mm-hmm. What's deterring you or are, are you interested? And just listening to feedback and just, you know, communicating with our residents. So that's, I think, our first step.
0: So can you provide some progress uh, toward that commitment? Right. So you mentioned one property. Um, It also sounds like uh, given how many um, properties you mentioned in in the beginning, uh, it sounds like you're trying to do this everywhere eventually. Um, So where are you right now?
4: So the EV100 commitment is actually at 100% of, so we're, we're trying to get to 100%, that's what the commitment is. So of our 20 buildings, we have EV infrastructure, charging infrastructure at 13 of our buildings. So we're like 65% of our portfolio has EV charging uh, capability. So we have about 101 charging units across our portfolio. We installed 40 last year and we plan to install 36 in this current reporting period with EV100 and possibly more, you know, depending on, you know, the budgets and the, you know, incentives that we can get and rebates and, you know, so. Got it. That's the plan.
0: What are the cha- challenges of delivering and how are you getting around them? So you mentioned surveying you know, trying to figure out how many you need. What are the other challenges of, of doing this? And how are you getting around those challenges?
4: So, you know, the first one I meant well, I just mentioned, right. Is the, you know, it does cost money. So it needs to be timed with the other, you know, capital improvements that you want to make and to your building and, you know, being sustainably focused, we have so many things that we want to do. And so we have to make sure the resources are allocated amongst all our buildings and we get the best, return for our you know stakeholders and shareholders. So I would say, you know, we look at the cost and we make sure that we are very diligent in following up with, you know, the, the BPU, the public, you know, the utility companies, any incentives, any rebates out there, we are making sure that we're, you know we're on the beat of finding these and using them. So that would mitigate that barrier. Another thing we're finding is, I mean, you would think the crazy thing, but just getting internet service to a garage, especially if it's below, you know, you're getting on your phone and you're losing service. So we're having, you know, you have Wi-Fi connection issues. If and if you don't, if it's only Wi-Fi enabled charger, you need the maybe, a, you know, to be able to use your um, regular cable, um, cellular data, and with these different charging stations, you need to have access to the internet for the billing. And for the monitoring, the electric usage and, you know, maybe at some times the grid, the capacity can't, you know, hold, have all that usage at the time. So it could shed usage. Um, you know, so it's, it's very important to have good infrastructure there for Wi-Fi and things like that. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Mm-hmm. so in that same vein, what partnerships or collaborations are, are important to, to do this? So, like, do you have a specific Partner that's helping you with the EV charging infrastructure. You know, do you have like a turnkey group of um, organizations that you go to when you want to do this that can help you sort this out?
4: Great question. I mean, your your service partnerships and your are key to anything that we're doing now. So, and having good partnerships with you know similar missions. So we do use a company to as a consultant to help us, you know, figure out where the rebates are, where the incentives are bringing in an engineering team, looking, walking our sites, giving us ideas of where we can do things. Um, Very important. And then having, you know, we're in New Jersey, as you mentioned earlier, having the um, PSE&G, you know, they're they're wonderful and a great partnership and they want to walk our sites and give us ideas of where, you know, we can create value and, and add these. And then the state itself, you know, the the state has its decarbonization goals and, you know, they're willing to help us out. And, you know, we're part of also we the um, with the DOE, we're part of the better climate challenge. And they're wonderful. They're constantly any questions that I have about EVs or this or what are other, you know, um, owners in the industry doing? They're very forthcoming because, you know, our government also has the decarbonization goals. So, there's just so many resources out there of you know partners that want us all to you know meet meet our mission here. Of,
0: mm-hmm.
4: you know, one final
0: one final question for you. Sorry to trip you what? there. Uh, <laughs> what benefits is Vera seeing from this? So you mentioned like it's a, it's an attractive potential benefit for for tenants. You know what, what bottom line? You know. How does Verus think that this will benefit the company um,
4: overall as it moves forward with this
0: sustainability mission?
4: I would say overall, it's been proven that being sustainability focused and having a more energy efficient building in the long run is best, and it is going to create value for a building. Um, so overall, we're doing something great, and we're very you know thrilled to create reduce carbon and energy, but and water usage and all these things. But in the end, it also does create value to assets and, you know, green buildings are more valuable in the end. So we're doing something wonderful for the environment and, you know, also for our shareholders and our residents and our community. I just feel like it's, you know, and then being a leader in these things, making other companies want to follow. So, and then just make us up our game and, and do better. So, you know, I think it's just a great relationship in the industry to do these things.
0: Great. Well, thanks for spending time with us today, Karen. Thank you. You just heard from Karen Cosmano, the head of sustainability and ESG for Varus Residential and a fellow Jersey girl.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. Just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350 Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time.
0: This episode is sponsored by Schneider Electric. Climate change is here, and so is the requirement to understand and report the risks that it brings to your business. As your partner in sustainability, Schneider Electric can help you navigate the winds of change. To see how, visit se.com forward slash climate risk.